Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Lisa's walking down a busy street in Camden, in North London, and she keeps looking over her shoulder to check if anyone's watching. Paranoia is now a constant in her life, ever since she discovered her ex-boyfriend, Mark the Climber, was an undercover cop. It's 2011, and she's heading to the offices of law firm Bernberg Pierce. I remember feeling quite hyper-aware whenever I went into the building, whenever I pressed the buzzer, just thinking that somebody is watching, that there will be people who don't want this meeting to happen or who want to monitor this meeting. She's joined by other women who have travelled for hours to get here. It's one of many times they'll get together. Inside, it's cramped and they have to keep the windows shut to keep out the noise. We were in this kind of hot, airless room, sharing some really huge things um, and almost having to pinch ourselves, like, is this really happening? Are we really here? This is the moment our women come together, because in this room, around a big table, Lisa's with Alison, Rosa and others, and they're talking to their lawyer, Harriet Wistrich. I'd heard that it happened in other countries, but I didn't think that this would be happening on the scale that it had been happening on in our country. She's representing eight of them in total who have all discovered their ex-boyfriends were police spies. They're suspicious of strangers. Their intimate lives have been violated by the police. Undercovers have spent years living with them, told them they loved them and befriended their families. But with time, they learn to trust each other. We're very different and we come from, you know, different parts of the country and we come from very different political backgrounds and we're different ages. But finding the other women is absolutely the best thing. This didn't feel like our activism or our politics. This was our personal, most deepest private moments that we were now discussing. And they're all at different stages in their journey. Alison and Rosa have known the real identity of their ex-boyfriends for the best part of a decade, while Lisa's only found out recently. It was intense and difficult, but also amazing. We all came together for the case, and I watched other women working through layers of understanding, which it took me long enough. You know, I spent years being relied to and relied to. And the more they share, the more they realise just how similar their love stories are. 
it's creepy. You know, so I remember us comparing our experiences and being like, oh, it must have been, it was worse for you. No, it was worse for you. And then having to kind of um, compromise on the fact that we all had these differently bad stories to tell that had a lot of crossover and a lot of similarity. The piecing together of the information and seeing our letters next to each other. People putting love letters next to each other, so the similarities. Hearing, you know, yeah, he had a van, yeah, my one had a van, yeah, my one had a van. Ah, OK. Well, maybe that's similar to this thing that happened to I'm me. I'm having a bit of a breakdown. I just need to get away and have some space. I remember other people talking about mirroring. It was, it was certainly not a rogue officer. This was commonplace. I started to really see the things that happened to me as a tactic. It was really, really shocking, one of the most scandalous forms of policing behaviour I'd come across for many years. I was horrified by it and wanted to take it forward. I'm Cara McGugan, and this is Bed of Lies. Episode 6, Fight Back. It's taken years for the women in our story to get to this point, and countless hours of sleuthing. Alison's hunted in the archives, Rosa's travelled to South Africa and Lisa's confronted her boyfriend with the truth. And ever since that moment, when Lisa unmasked Mark Kennedy, the undercover policing scandal has erupted. In 2011, there's a constant stream of new revelations and behind the scenes, the women are still making personal discoveries. It's a lot to process, but there's one thing that's clear. The lies run deep. The Met Police is embarrassed and they try to claim Mark Kennedy's a rogue officer, that he went off script and they want to stop further leaks from compromising their undercover work. But it's too late. The women have come together. I want to backtrack a bit to tell you how they got here. And then she said she was thinking of taking a legal case. That's Rosa. It all starts when she gets in touch with well-known activist Helen Steele, who discovered her partner John Dines was also an undercover cop. But it meant so much that I'd managed to get contact with her I said, just said to her, do you really think anyone cares what happens to us? Because I didn't believe I had human rights anymore. The thing is, people really do care, especially the other women who have been in similar relationships. And then one of my friends put the word out that it was my birthday. And... Lisa's utterly heartbroken after her breakup with Mark, the climber with the flashy shades. For weeks after that night, where they confront him round the fire in Nottingham, it's all she can do to make herself eat and get out of bed. I don't think I've had so many birthday cards on a birthday as an adult. Well, actually, ever. So I had a lot of things in the post. And in amongst all of that stuff, there was a letter. Letter from Helen Steele. The same Helen who's been speaking to Rosa. And the letter says... I understand you're probably feeling a bit too in shock at the moment, but when you're ready to talk, I'd really love to talk to you because something very similar happened to me. And I remember reading that at the time and just thinking, how could something similar have ever happened to anybody? How could anybody know how I feel? And with that letter, all the strands come together. The women are connected. Because when Helen meets Lisa, she says... There were some other women that she knew about, one of them being Alison. Helen knew that I existed. And so I was contacted that there was a legal case and did I want to be involved? And yes, please, I did. Over the following months, 
Lisa gets in touch with other people she knows who slept with Mark, her ex. And eventually, they have a group of eight women who want to fight the police. So we're back in Camden, in that cramped room on a noisy street, where Harriet and the women decide to bring a civil claim against the Met. But pretty quickly, it becomes clear the police won't engage. They try to get the case thrown out. We were met with a police policy of what's known as NCND, neither confirm nor deny, which basically meant we can't possibly respond to your pleaded case because um, we have a policy of, of NCND in relation to confirming or denying whether somebody was an undercover police officer, let alone anything they did as an undercover police officer. You might remember that I got that as an answer myself in the last episode when I asked David Tucker if he'd ever gone undercover. We don't say whether we were or were not undercover police officers. It's uh, one of those, you don't confirm or deny it. The women are desperate for answers. They want to know who knew about the relationships and their most intimate moments. Did back office staff read their text messages? Were they monitored even when they were on holiday? or together with their family. But as the police obstruct their efforts, their hopes of getting the truth slowly evaporate. There was no way they were going to plead um, to the case or uh, provide any disclosure. But Harriet keeps working, and she gathers evidence about the emotional impact on the women. So thank you for chatting with us, Georgina. Do you want to start by introducing yourself um, and your role? Yes, I'm Georgina Clifford. I'm a clinical psychologist and um, I've been involved in the, in the case by conducting assessments. Georgina asks them questions to find out the psychological impact of the lies spun by the undercovers. A lot of them describe this idea of sleeping with the enemy. So it was a sense of being traumatised, but only really realising later on once the relationship had come to the end and the discovery had taken place. A lot of the women had a number of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, including a kind of really escalated sort of threat response, hypervigilance, um, difficulties trusting people. Have you got any examples? What was happening with these women is that they started to feel incredibly anxious about the idea that their phones were bugged, that they were being watched, that they were unsafe in their own homes, trackers are being put on their car. And I know often the term is called paranoia, and I think that personally I would question that because often we think of paranoia as being an irrational suspicion or mistrust of others or something that's unreasonable. But actually what was unique in this case is that there there was evidence that these women had been monitored, that things that they were doing had been watched and monitored over a period of time. You know, the paranoia that spooking and it's because it's already in our heads suspicions of people sitting near us feeling followed eye contact was made with strangers spotting people walking down my street who i then saw on a bus thinking people were waving at me other symptoms include difficulty sleeping lack of concentration flashbacks some people they find that they have Um, a racing heart, some people get very sweaty, some people find it very difficult to breathe, some people get shaky or hot or cold, Um, so often there's a a physical response. And so some of the women I assessed had a, you know, they would talk about panic attacks and actually a panic attack is this kind of reactivation of your threat system. 
And it's not just the trauma response that's interesting. There are also overlaps with survivors of domestic abuse. The women believe that they're in a relationship, often with somebody who is incredibly um, thoughtful and caring, who they may have described as a soulmate or somebody that they saw as, you know, a long-term partner. They realised that actually they didn't know who this person was at all, which I think incredibly destabilising and, and incredibly difficult psychologically to work through. Georgina puts this all together in a report that helps with the legal case. It says the relationships had a damaging effect on the women, that the violation deeply affected them. For Lisa, who's only recently broken up with Mark, this is all still pretty raw. And at that point, the idea of actually going to therapy, you know, that felt quite a long way off. I was still in it, you know, I was still in some ways getting the odd email off him and hearing new revelations off other people. And, you know, for me, it, it was still feeling quite current. Emails from Flash Mark, that is, saying he loves her. But she has the other women now, and they're trawling over the bones of their relationships. The meetings in Harriet's office can be hard work at times, but there are lighter moments too. You know, we came from very different political backgrounds, so that was also a source of tension and a source of humour. Oh, gosh, when we wanted to go for food after a meeting, trying to figure out, OK, so whose dietary requirements and whose ethical requirements and whose religious requirements? You know, some of us are still, you know, strict vegans, you know, and then somebody else would say, well, I really need a stiff drink and a steak. There was just things that we would have to kind of um, dance around. We would sometimes walk around quite a lot, trying to find somewhere where we could actually all go. And then we'd go in somewhere and would we be being overheard, listened to, followed? There was our kind of our paranoias to take into account. And all those things, you know, we, you had to joke about all of it or you'd end up uh, in tears. So one person's paranoia versus someone else's veganism, meaning that it was impossible to find somewhere that we could go and sit. <laughs> the legal case drags on for years. The police are obstructive. But while their claim rumbles on, the case against the Met keeps growing. And the list of people who were spied upon or had their lives infiltrated by undercovers gets bigger and bigger. Allegations of infiltration emerged from a former undercover officer, Peter Francis, who was deployed in the Met's special demonstration squad. These have been examined in detail. Peter Francis, a cop for the SDS, blows the whistle on the secretive unit. He starts speaking as Officer A, then tells the world his real and cover names. In interviews with The Guardian and Channel 4, he lifts the lid on the squad's tactics. He says he got his undercover name, Pete Black, from a dead child and that he had sex with two activists. It was part of my persona that I was a person who had casual sex as part of my character. He's speaking there on Channel 4's dispatches in 2013. He also reveals he was sent to spy on Stephen Lawrence's family. He's given a task. Could I find out anything else that could be used 
to maybe get the public to not have as much sympathy for the Stephen Lawrence campaign as in what it truly had. Is there anything the police could possibly use through the media to start maybe tarring the campaign? But that's not all. It comes out that the SDS and MPORU also spied on 11 members of parliament, including Jack Straw, Jeremy Corbyn and Harriet Harman. The units were involved in the blacklisting of trade unionists. That means they gave details about activists to MI5 and Margaret Thatcher. And that intel was then used to stop people from getting jobs. And the head of the unit, Bob Lambert, his targets allege he planted a firebomb at Debenhams. He denies it. But he also fathered a child while undercover. There are so many twists in this story, and they all come as new blows to the women who were in loving relationships with the police spies. Take Alison. She's come to terms with the fact her ex, Mark from Birkenhead's, an undercover cop. It's been over a decade since he left, and she's slowly rebuilt her life. She has a family and a new career. It hasn't been easy, but she's filled in the gaps of Mark's story whilst he'd lied to me about what his job was and he'd lied to me why he was in my life and he'd obviously lied to me about a lot of things, I chose to believe that he hadn't lied to me about loving me and not having deceived me or cheated on me because I thought if you're going to fill in the gaps of bits of information you don't know, you might as well fill in them with nice things rather than horrible things if you don't know. She's known the other women for over a year and the pieces of the puzzle have slotted into place. But there's another shock waiting for her, one that'll change the way she thinks about Mark and their life together. When I was told, kind of from information from a whistleblower, that in actual fact, Mark was married with children during the whole period of our relationship, that was a kind of another, you know, it was another big shock. The man Alison desperately wanted to have children with, the person she dragged to couples therapy for a year and a half to discuss starting a family. He had kids all along. It was another shift in my perspective and having to then reframe again so many kind of perceptions of, of the relationship and what it had meant. And so, again, I had to go back to the letter which said, you know, I'd never cheated on you or deceived you. And reread that as either just a straight lie or a very twisted truth that meant that Mark Cassidy had never cheated on me or deceived me. As soon as I learned that he was actually married with children, my um, Miss Marple skills kicked in again. The tools at her disposal are more advanced than they were in 2000 when Mark vanished. For one thing, there's Facebook. Within a very short space of time, I had identified through social media and through genealogy searches um, a number of things, uh, including Mark's wife and his children. She finds out more about Mark's family, like the fact he's still married. But if that's not all bad enough, there's another discovery that makes her feel sick. I call Alison back to confirm this last detail. Yeah, his third child was born about six months into our relationship. It's beyond hideous, isn't it? It's beyond hideous. 
And that's when Alison realises that she was never really part of Mark's life. And their time together, it was his job all along. So actually, when he was getting up at half past six every morning and coming home at half past five, I think he was actually going to his real family. Maybe he had some meetings during the day. Maybe he did a little bit of something else, who knows. But I think he left his real family in the afternoon to be back at the end of the day with me. I understood that me and all of our friends and all of the people he'd been socialising with were his work. And what he told me was his work was his family. All this makes Alison more determined to get answers from the police. And then a breakthrough. In 2014, Home Secretary Theresa May announces a public inquiry into undercover policing. And so, given the gravity of what has now been uncovered, I have decided that a public inquiry, led by a judge, is necessary to investigate undercover policing and the operation of the SDS. Only a public inquiry will be able to get to the full truth behind the matters of huge concern expressed and contained in Mark Ellison's report. At that stage, we started getting increasingly high offers to settle the case. Lawyer Harriet Wistrich. And we were able to have a, a mediation where we could seek to negotiate an outcome. And within a year, the women win their case against the Met Police. In November, the Met gives an unprecedented public apology and agrees to pay substantial compensation to the eight women. Thanks in large part to the courage and tenacity of these women in bringing these matters to light, it has become apparent that some officers, acting undercover while seeking to infiltrate protest groups, entered into long-term intimate sexual relationships with women, which were abusive, deceitful, manipulative and wrong. I acknowledge that these relationships were a violation of the women's human rights, an abuse of police power and caused significant trauma. I unreservedly apologise on behalf of the Metropolitan Police Service. I'm aware that money alone cannot compensate for the loss of time, their hurt or the feelings of abuse caused by these relationships. This settlement follows a mediation process in which I heard directly from the women concerned and I wish to make a number of matters absolutely clear. Most importantly, relationships like these should never have happened. They were wrong and they were a gross violation of personal dignity and integrity. And let me add these points. Firstly, none of the women with whom the undercover officers had a relationship brought it on themselves. They were deceived, pure and simple. And I want to make it clear that the Metropolitan Police does not suggest that any of these women could in any way be criticised for the way in which these relationships developed. The apology in, in particular, which was delivered publicly by the Assistant Chief Constable, felt like a, a, a victory at the time. It was not a formal admission of liability in the legal sense, but it did acknowledge that the relationships were uh, abusive, deceitful, manipulative and wrong, and that they should never have happened. It, it was a very powerful uh, moment. That was huge, you know, that was hugely important. You know, those words are important to hear. But there's one thing missing from the apology. 
What we were really looking for in our court case was answers. And that apology in some ways, at the time it felt like it was a beginning, but what it's transpired to be is a way of them not having to give us any information. We can you know, come to a settlement that includes an apology, which means that we don't actually have to take responsibility for what we've done. We don't actually have to give you the files. We don't actually have to open up our, our systems for scrutiny. So whilst it was incredibly pivotal and hugely important, it's also nowhere near enough and quite hollow. The fightback's just begun, but the scandal's about to get even bigger. More on that after this short break. Hi, I'm Martin Evans. I'm The Telegraph's crime correspondent, which means I spend my working life covering stories about some of the darkest aspects of our society. Death, destruction, murder, they're all on my daily beat. It also means I've followed closely the shocking revelations regarding the women unintentionally at the heart of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history, the women that you'll hear about in this podcast. But journalism like this takes time, and time, as we all know, means money. And we can't tell important stories like this without the support of our subscribers. So if you'd like to support what we're doing and to read, watch and listen to our huge range of journalism, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. And after that, it's just £2 a week. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast. Or click on the link in the show notes to this episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Met Police have apologised and paid a substantial sum in compensation to the eight women. A public inquiry is in the works, but there are more undercovers yet to be unmasked. My name is Donald O'Driscoll. I've been a political campaigner for over 30 years now. 
I knew Mark Kennedy and a number of other undercovers back in the day. Donald's a founder of the Undercover Research Group. After he discovers his friend Mark's been spying on him, he spends all his time investigating the SDS and MPOIU. He spent years doing this, and he's uncovered five spies in total and played a key role in building a picture of their tactics. People come to him and say... We have this friend, we've got big questions. Are we being paranoid or are we genuinely sitting on an undercover officer? In 2015, the undercover research group gets a tip-off that Carlo the Italian could be a spy. Remember, he went out with Lindsay and then vanished. And after Lindsay, he went out with Donna McLean, an activist in the anti-war campaign. And guess what? He vanished again. So now Donna wants to know why he suddenly left her. The first thing we always do is ask people to write down the basis of their suspicions to get a, for them to get a feel of how genuine their fears are. And then they start investigating. Their methods are similar to those of Rosa, Lisa and Alison. They start with the archives and they look for clues that a person might not be who they say they are. So while we can be open on some of our tactics and some of our tools, there are other ones we will keep close to our chest. And while they're doing this, they make sure they don't do anything that could alert the police. We know that at certain points we've been under surveillance and they've been watching us. We anticipate that and we plan for that. We know that we're poking a hornet's nest and therefore we need to take the right precautions and be very security conscious as well. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of all the people that we're helping. How much do you think police are monitoring? Could they be monitoring this conversation? It's very hard to say. Um, I would always work on the principle that they are. Eventually, researchers find another Carlo with a different surname. And the odd thing is his family all have the same first names as those that Carlo the Italian talked about, like his brother and his dad. And that gives them enough to show they're on the right track. Pictures on Facebook confirm these two people are the same, and a look at the public records office confirms their suspicion. He's a police officer. Lindsay's driving her son to primary school. It's been 15 years since Carlo ghosted her, when she got on the night bus and travelled across London, only to find his flat deadlocked. After that night, she broke up with him, pulled the plug before he could... And since then, she's moved to Liverpool and had a child. Now her phone's ringing. So I pulled over to the side of the road. I saw out of the corner of my eye one of the teachers coming over to the car to find out why I'd parked outside the school. She ignores the teacher and puts the handbrake on. I answered the phone. It's a friend from her activist days. She, with some difficulty, began to tell me, and I could hear, I could hear in her voice the, the problem she was having with this whole concept, but she began to tell me that um, they now had definitive proof that Carlo had been undercover. So they'd found copies of his children's birth certificate and they'd found a copy of his marriage certificate with profession police officer. I don't think I was actually able to take it in at the time. I I had no 
compass for this. You know, I had no reference. I wasn't able to process this information because this was not in my life experience, you know. But I remember feeling very early on this this anxiety in the pit of my stomach, you know, and it was constant. It wasn't just moments of anxiety as I thought about this new information that I'd just received. It was constant. So this anxiety just became part of, of my personality for quite a while afterwards. Anger followed just in the injustice of the situation. I had a period of sleeplessness where I would just lie awake, try, just trying to remember details, minute details of our relationship, things he'd said, things I'd said, um, the people I'd introduced him to, which is a whole other layer of guilt associated with this discovery. In the weeks that follow, the news sinks in and Lindsay starts telling her friends. You know, I couldn't keep it in. It, I, you know, part of me thought, well, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be speaking freely, but part of me, I just couldn't keep it in. It was just such a revelation to me. Um, so I told a couple of newer friends who aren't political in Liverpool and they almost didn't react. It was almost like they thought I'd kind of you know, they, they put it down to temporary insanity or something. You know, they really didn't know how to receive this information. And I think that, I, I genuinely think that some people thought I was a bit of a fantasist, to be honest. But of course she isn't. And so she joins the growing list of women who have found out their relationships are a lie. She launches a new legal case against the Met Police. There's a process each woman goes through when they discover the news. And there are different layers to it. When Alison hears that Mark has a wife and three kids, she can't help but think how it will affect them. You know, that just changes the story again, doesn't it? it and it makes a whole set of other people victims of this method of policing and these deployments um, that are replicated across all of our stories. From her memory, he spent every night with her for the best part of five years. How could his wife not have known? I think the general picture from anything we know about any undercover officer where it's been kind of... I, I think they make it all very dangerous. I think everyone's fright. I think they frighten everyone. That's how they, that's how they manage it, basically, by frightening everybody. And how could Mark have kept up the act for so long? Yeah, I think he was probably quite happy in that role. I don't think it was a difficult role for him to play in terms of his time with me. I think it was extremely easy. I think he was quite, you know, I think... It doesn't mean that he had any genuine feelings in the way that we might understand them, <laughs> but I think in his own um, very selfish, self-centred way, he was quite content. I think, you know, what you don't know doesn't hurt you. His wife didn't know about me. I didn't know about her. And he had a comfortable home, well-cooked food. You know, someone who kind of let him be who he wanted to be, really, and loved him for that. And probably quite an exciting job. At the heart of it is the police belief that this is serious work. 
they're all doing it for the greater good. You know, that's that's the narrative, isn't it? That's the, the story that they tell themselves, I think. Right, I think my daughter might be back here somewhere as well. OK, so shall I, can I pause the audacity or send it to you? The bed of lies spreads far beyond the women these officers had relationships with. Their wives kept in the dark for so long. Everybody the cops meet while undercover. And many of them aren't political in any way. Donald's spoken to around 150 people who have come into contact with police spies. These officers weren't sent in to target specific individuals for specific criminality. They were sent in to target entire groups, entire communities of people. And in the process of doing that, they treated everybody as criminal. Anybody and everybody who, who was connected got spied upon. But the thing that makes Donald flinch is the accounts of children who have come across undercover police. These were people who had undercover cops as babysitters. The parents feel incredible guilt of having let these strangers into their children's lives. And the children themselves have been deeply emotionally affected. And it's not just the children of the activists. One of the most shocking things about this story is the children born into relationships between activists and undercovers. And that brings us back to Rosa and Jim. We're picking up their story just when Rosa's discovered she's pregnant, at the end of episode four. It's 2001, and they've reunited after she tracked down the headquarters of the SDS. Jim's told her he wants to leave the police and go on the run. I believed we were in hiding. I had my name stripped from me so that the police wouldn't find out we were there so that we could escape. But their plans to flee keep getting delayed. Jim's stalling. And so Rosa gives birth to their first child while he still works for the police. The thing is, this Jim she has a daughter with isn't the left-wing environmentalist that she fell in love with. He's Detective Constable Jim Boiling, and he's not acting anymore. Looking back, I was then thrust into a relationship with a completely unknown stranger who I had had no relationship to whatsoever. You know, my partner was gone. I'd never find them because they never existed. Money didn't matter to him. In his old world, money was central in his pension, in his new world. Ethics and beliefs and being politically minded was very important to him and meant nothing to him in his new world. <laughs> just, just everything. Did he still eat vegan? No. No. The thing Rosa doesn't know yet is that Jim never planned to leave the police. He moves from the SDS to another squad within what was called Special Branch, the Muslim Contact Unit. And there he works with Bob Lambert, you know, the former head of the SDS, the one who had a child on duty. While Jim's police career thrives, his relationship with Rosa takes a sinister turn. He tells her no one can know about their family, and his lies keep growing. 
She's isolated and living with a man she doesn't recognise. In some ways, a very classic abusive relationship where that's intermixed with them being your loving partner and you're like, you don't want to lose Mr Nice Guy, you don't want to get Mr Nasty back. I remember us hiding in the bathroom, me and my daughter, my little baby, hiding, it must have been when she was very young, and saw the Moses basket going flying down the corridor past the open door of the bathroom. Rose was cut off from her friends in Reclaim the Streets and has little contact with her family. One day we were living in a normal world and I could go any, anywhere I wanted. The next day I couldn't go outside because it wasn't safe. And reality was changed day in, day out, day in, day out, hour to hour. Everything was put on sand. My dad passed away with my mum explaining that I couldn't be there because I was with someone and it had to, but it had to be a great secret, but my mum didn't know what the secret was. And my dad asking, you know, is he married? And my dad died not, not knowing what was going on, which is, um, without me there, which is, is an awful thing. She tries to leave when she's pregnant with their second child, but then a friend asks, what will you do for money? So she goes back to Jim and gives birth to a baby boy. Then in 2005, Jim tells Rosa she has to marry him he says the reason he hasn't left the police is because she hasn't committed to him. And if I'd done that, he would have been able to become Jim Sutton, my partner. But I've let him down. It's a tough time in Rosa's life. And then she gets some devastating news. It shows her she needs to escape from Jim once and for all. Their two children are diagnosed with a degenerative disease. And the doctor says neither of them will live to adulthood with my children being diagnosed not to have long to live and his appalling reaction to that, that it's not what he wanted to do with his life and that they were monsters. It was a, it was a little bit of a wake-up call for me. And so Rosa leaves. She takes the children to a refuge. Piece by piece, over the following years, she rebuilds her life. She reconnects with the activists she lost touch with. Before long, she meets Helen, Alison and Lisa and the other women who have been deceived by the police. So the relationships have played their course. Hearts have been broken, children born and lies unravelled. The women have exposed the truth, and the story's out in the open. The police have apologised and a public inquiry's just beginning. You might expect that now, at long last, there's going to be full transparency, that those spied on will get answers, and that there'll be no more shocks. That's what you're thinking, right? Next time on Bed of Lies... They found out that their marriages were based on lies, that their husbands' jobs, of which they had been so proud, had been vehicles for the worst kind of infidelity. Bed of Lies is written by me, Cara McGugan, and produced by Sarah Peters at Tuning Fork Productions. The executive producer is Theodora Leludis, and sound designs by Peregrine Andrews. To stay on top of who's who in our story, to see exclusive pictures of the men involved, and to look inside my reporter's notebook, go to 
telegraph.co.uk forward slash bed of lies. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.